So anyway, if you use Hotspot Shield, basically the uptake here is that uh, you might want to look for some other services. I would recommend looking for something that costs money. That doesn't guarantee, of course, that they're not going to try to double dip and make money off you some other way. Uh, but it's probably a better chance that they're going to respect you a little bit better if you're paying them some money directly and they hopefully don't have to make money some other way. Uh, it increases your odds that you're going to get what you're paying for and not be sold down the river. One other quick thing I'd like to mention is beware always of links that you click on that you're not expecting. Uh, right now, there's some malware going around through Facebook Messenger. They show up as video links uh, from somebody that you know. So it'll say, hey, this is Carrie's video link. Click this. Check this out. Uh, that should always be somewhat suspicious. And if you didn't ask for that link and you didn't expect that to come, uh, beware of some of these links. They, I, It sounds to me from reading it that you actually have to jump through all sorts of hoops to finally get to the point where they try to make you download and install malware. Sometimes it's a flash player they say that you need or some sort of an update that you say you need. Um, but uh, eventually they get around to trying to force you to install something and they try to trick you into doing that. Uh, that's the case of actually most of these kind of phishing scams where they're trying to get you to click on some link and eventually get you to install some sort of software. So anyway, just beware, particularly right now with Facebook Messenger, there's some bad stuff going around. Uh, don't be clicking those links unless you know exactly where they came from and you can verify that it was sent uh, by somebody and it's legit. And also at the end of the show, I've got a new initiative to help me to help you. You'll want to stay tuned and listen to that. And now it's time for our interview with India McKinney and Adam Schwartz, two folks from the Electronic Frontier Foundation, the EFF. The EFF is a wonderful nonprofit organization, and uh, they are supported by their members and by donations. So uh, I highly encourage you to check out their website and float them a little bit of money. They're doing great work for you out there on your behalf, and they could use your help. Now, let's talk to Adam and India. All right, and as promised, we are welcoming not one, but two representatives today from the wonderful Electronic Frontier Foundation. We've got Adam Schwartz, a returning guest who is a senior staff attorney, and also India McKinney, a legislative analyst primarily focusing on privacy and surveillance issues. Thank you both very much for coming today. Thank you for having us. Thank you. And we've got so much to talk about, and it's unfortunate that we have so much to talk about, but there seems to be assaults left and right on the privacy and it's hard to keep track of. So, so my goal here today is to keep our audience up to date on the things that are going on, help them understand how this is, how that affects them because some of these things will seem esoteric or they're, or they're about people who travel and maybe I don't travel, uh, those kind of things. But I wanted to bring it home for everybody what's going on and and why it's important to them and, and also how to get involved and how to make their voices heard. If they, if they, we find that we would get them all riled up, what they should do about that. And let's start with an article. I, uh, the reason I reached out to you guys in the first place uh, about this uh, pending bill called the Building America's Trust Act, uh, who's being a uh, bill authored by Senator John Cornyn of Texas, uh, whose goal, according to the summary, is long term border security and interior enforcement strategy, which is both vague and, you know, why wouldn't you want that, right? Um, but, uh, I was reading an article on Ars Technica, which you guys were quoted in. Um, and it says, quote, according to the draft text, a slew of, of advanced surveillance technologies would be deployed at the border, including more use of drones, not less than 24 hours per day, five days a week, increased recording and storage of various biometric exit data. The bill would also require that some quote unquote aliens who are ordered to be removed would be subject to mandatory DNA collection among other heightened security measures. So unpack that for us. What does all that mean? What, what is going on with this bill? Okay, well, there's a lot to unpack, as you mentioned. But before we get started, I want to give you a little bit of a framework about how at EFF we look at bills like this, give you our Fourth Amendment framework. Perfect. Uh, The Fourth Amendment explicitly protects against a surveillance state. And there's some questions that we ask when we start looking at legislation to see exactly what the problems are with the idea that there should be a compelling reason to move past these protections if necessary, but only if necessary. So the first question is, how targeted is this search? Are you looking at a person specifically and why? The second question is, what is the standard for the collection of this information? Is it probable cause? Is it reasonable suspicion? What is the standard for collection? Uh, specifically, what are you looking for and how can you limit your search so that you're only looking for the data that you're interested in that relates to this specific person because of this specific reason? And fourth, 
who gets to decide what that looks like. Is it an impartial judge somewhere else, or is it an individual agent, a law enforcement official at the scene? And so those are the that's the framework that we look at when we're looking at le- pieces of legislation like the Building America's Trust Act. So yeah, let's dive into that, please. Uh, let's let's go walk through those one at a time. Let, let, how do those apply to this particular case? Sure. So there's a few things just looking at the bill that we have a lot of concerns about. One of them is the reliance on drones to achieve a situational awareness and operational control of the border. Uh, The bill calls for developing a strategic plan specifically to increase these surveillance capabilities. And they are looking to incorporate some strategies that DOD has developed in some of their military operations, which going back to the framework, creates a lot of problems. Mm-hmm. Anytime that you've got the drones looking at the border, you're not looking at an individual person specifically. You're going to be capturing a lot of data on a lot of American citizens that are not targeted in any way other than they just happen to live near the southwest border. That's right. not good enough. Uh, what is the standard for collection of this data? Just wanting to know more information is not enough in this case. Actually, let me stop here real quick, because one of the questions I had, though, as I was reading this article is, what is the definition of, quote unquote, near the border? Because some of the things I've read says that, according to, I guess, I don't know if it's law or or just practice, that that actually could be up to 100 miles from the border. Is that true? So that depends a little bit on specifically what you're talking about. And your question is a very good one, because it the bill doesn't explicitly say in a lot of cases. There are some instances where looking at, for example, license plate readers, you can have license plate readers associated with border searches up to 100 miles away from a port of entry. Uh, There are some other things that are specific to the port of entry itself. When it comes to the drone surveillance of the border, I'm not sure that the bill specifies a limited location. I just added that even if the drone was literally flying over the line on the map that is the border and not taking advantage of that larger 100-mile zone that you referenced, the drone that's right over the border would be capturing information about the millions of Americans who live in cities that are right next to the border. Right, absolutely. Yeah, that that certainly disturbing. All right, I'm sorry, I interrupted you. Continue. Uh, no, that's, that's a great question. Um, so again... When you're, let's say you have a drone that's only on the border and you're flying over El Paso, what are you looking at? What are you specifically trying to get at and how are you limiting the search to only looking for the information that you are specifically targeting? Uh, the biggest problem we have with drones is that it really does feel like a dragnet search. You're looking for a problem as opposed to you know what the problem is and you're looking for tools to combat a specific problem. Right. And when we talk about drones, I mean, in these day and age, when people think of drones, we think predator. So I I assume, well, maybe I assume these are unarmed drones. These are just camera drones. Or do we know, I guess? Well, that's a terrifying question. (laughs) Yes, Uh, it is. (laughs) The bill doesn't specify. Uh, I hope it's not predator drones. I would hope not to. But that's why I know that a lot of people would think that, because when we talk about drones and they see drones on the news, I think that's kind of the ones we see. Now, of course, there's always the DJI uh, you know, home drones, but uh, maybe then maybe that's what they're talking about. I'm not sure, but um, will they be using? I assume the lot of cameras. Will they be using any sorts of uh, like facial recognition technology for? Are they flying low enough that they could actually recognize people? Again, that's a great question. A lot of that has to do with there's a difference between what they should be doing and what they can be doing. And there's a lot of technology, as you know, especially when you start getting into military grade equipment. There's a lot that we can get that's very specific. And so going back to the questions of what we should be doing, we would argue that they should not be doing that, whether or not they could. The bill doesn't specifically exclude that possibility, but it doesn't specifically include it either. Right. Okay, the other questions, keep going. What were the other questions, uh, the other four, uh, part of the four questions? Uh, well, going on to another part of the bill itself, uh, there's a 
big part of the bill in several different sections in the legislative language that deals with biometric data collection from a number of different people and a number of different scenarios and a number of different levels. You mentioned the facial recognition uh, scans. One of the things that we know is happening from reports in the media and some of the reports from DHS themselves is Customs and Border Patrol has been capturing face prints of travelers. And these are both U.S. persons traveling, U.S. citizens, U.S. legal permanent residents, as well as immigrants at airports. So if you have been through the airport, one of the specific airports that they are piloting these programs, CBP very well has an image of your face in a database somewhere. Yes, and I've got lots of questions about that. First, is that on both leaving the country and coming back? So the bill will talk about a biometric entry and exit program. Uh, and I don't know that we, I think it's both. I don't know that the bill specifically says only exit or only entry. It's entry and exit. Just, just for a smidgen of background, um, there are a number of acts of Congress that um, address um, the uh, collection of biometrics at entry and exit from foreign uh, persons. And in practice, they have set up a screening system for collecting biometrics when foreigners arrive. And in the last year, um, with no particular authorization from Congress, they've established a process of collecting biometrics from foreigners and Americans when they fly out of the country from certain airports. And they're in the process of massively expanding that program of, of exit biometric collection from US citizens and foreigners alike. And so when this new bill is dropped, you know, in, in that, uh, you know, uh, executive action context, and it says that they're going to do biometric entry exit collection, what we understand that to mean is authorization to collect biometrics from all travelers, uh, U.S. citizen and foreigner alike, uh, upon arrival or departure. Now, the language is vague, and, and what it means uh, is, is perhaps only known to them, but, but in this historical context, we consider that slippery language to be an invitation to, to get biometrics from, from Americans and foreigners alike uh, going and coming. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you started to touch on this. What what agent, let's, let's say this information is collected, it's stored in some database somewhere, who will have access to this data and how long will it be kept? Is it strictly U.S. intelligence? Is it U.S. law enforcement? Do we share this with some of the Five Eyes countries? How does How does that work? So some of the, the databases that are collected, some of that uh, information will be shared among federal agencies, and some of the databases have language in the bill that require the databases to be compatible with similar databases at state and local levels. So even though the bill doesn't explicitly say that this information shall be shared with state and local uh, law enforcement, you could draw the conclusion that it opens the possibility that it will. Uh, there's nothing that I've seen in the bill that says that we will share this with other countries. But again, there's nothing in the bill that would exclude that as well. From the from the terrorism bills that came out of 9-11, I know there was a lot of em emphasis on sharing data across all the various agencies because we weren't connecting the dots before. And I seem to recall there was some sort of kind of a blanket statement that this kind of information, there was a, there was a format or a forum uh, for sharing this kind of information across agencies. Does that cover situations like this as well? Yeah, I, I'm not familiar with that. I, I will say that, you know, mission creep is a big concern for us. And we've already seen that with the old program that was meant for non-citizens is being applied with no congressional oxygen, uh, action to citizens. And, and we're concerned that once they have the facial recognition cameras up to verify your identity when you want to get on an airplane, that the next thing they do is uh, start screening your face against people who are wanted for a, a violent crime. And then it's going to be people who are uh, wanted for having not paid a parking ticket. And, and we think you should be able to get on an airplane to visit family or uh, to a job opportunity without uh, being afraid of this kind of law enforcement screening that, that is really for us just over the horizon from, from the system they're building right now. Do we know if this data has got any sorts of controls on it whatsoever for access? I mean, I, I, like a warrant or, or anything along those lines? And how long is it, will this information potentially be stored? Is there, are, is there a, anything in the law that says we must purge this every so often? Or 
it, under certain conditions can this information be purged or should we just assume that once you're in this database they have it forever the, the practice of customs right now with their biometric screening system is they're keeping it two weeks um, two weeks is a lot of data with you know with nearly a million people crossing the border a day uh, and a, a ripe um, target for, for for data thieves uh, they have not committed to keeping it for less time or, or for not expanding the amount of time. And the bill on its face has no restraint on how long at all. And so we think it's in the nature of government to uh, keep data longer and longer. Yeah. And you mentioned hackers, which there was the what was it? The um, one of the federal offices fingerprint databases a few years back was hacked and all that all the digital fingerprints were leaked. Uh, that is something else that we need, we obviously need to be concerned about as soon as you know, it's one thing to worry about how it's collected, and how it's used, if it's done properly and it's done according to some, hopefully some law somewhere. But you know, once hackers get involved or once this data gets loose, all bets are off, right? Exactly. And does citizenship play into this at all? Um, am I, do I have more rights as a citizen or as a permanent resident than a visitor? Uh, can I refuse this if I do what happens? So, uh, as we said, right now, CBP is collecting face prints on all travelers, uh, U.S. citizens as well as immigrants. Uh, there are some of the trends that we have noticed that the global trend of increasing biometric data collection is troubling for a number of reasons. There are some, the part of the bill includes iris scans of people applying for visas or immigrant applications that doesn't currently apply to US citizens but that doesn't mean if you're a US citizen that's applying for another country you'll now face retaliation because you're we're scanning the irises of their citizens they're going to scan the irises of our citizens right and we've also seen over time that programs that begin by targeting immigrants end up including American citizens. Initially with the face prints at the airport, it was only travelers going to and from, I think it was Dubai, and now it's being expanded to all travelers. So where does this thing stand politically? What, what Does it have support? Do we think this is likely to make it through Congress and to the president's desk? That's a great question. And we'll get the answer to that question and more right after the break. You're listening to the America Out Loud Talk Radio Network. It's where we say, let the silent voices be heard. We invite you back to AmericaOutloud.com to get all the latest, make it a daily stop, and also get the app. You go right to the App Store and download our free app, and that will put all our content right into your hands on your phones and your tablets. It doesn't get any easier than that. Think back to the last time you felt healthy and energized. The best times of our lives occur when we're at the peak of our health, sleeping better, full of energy and focus. We know that fades with age, and you might be feeling the effects of aging as low energy and poor sleep. But it doesn't have to be that way. There haven't been any nutrition systems designed to rejuvenate our bodies as we get older until now. Healthy Cell Pro is the only multi-nutrient system that impacts the building block of your body, the cell. Created by anti-aging expert and Nobel Prize nominee, Dr. Vincent Giampapa, award-winning Healthy Cell Pro cuts through the complexity of nutrition supplements by simply giving you the purest ingredients, filling dietary gaps to nourish your cells and enhance your quality of life for optimal performance. Visit HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for an exclusive discount or call 844-869-9958. So where does this thing stand politically? What, what, does it have support? Do we think this is likely to make it through Congress and to the president's desk? That's a great question. This bill was introduced at the beginning of August. We're going to have a very busy fall. Uh we have heard Senator Cornyn is a member of the Republican leadership. So it's not clear to me what the future of this bill is, but I think we should expect that it's going to receive very serious consideration. Yeah. And I'm sure if it hit the president's desk, I have no, I have no doubt that he would sign it. Um, 
Whatever happened to the collecting of social media uh, information by, from foreigners crossing the border? That uh, we probably talked about this last time, Adam, when you were on the when you were on the show. Uh, is that ongoing? Was that something that was proposed that was still being worked through? So there are now four formal programs of asking foreign visitors for their social media handles before they get on airplanes to the United States, and we have opposed all of those. Um, as well, um, episodically, um, border agents are asking um, foreign citizens and U.S. citizens alike at the border um, to disclose their social media handles. Uh, and now this bill um, uh, would codify and we assume um, expand uh, to all foreign visitors uh, the same um, ask for their social media um, identifiers. Although the language is actually a little bit uh, tricky, it's unclear uh, whether the bill means to expand that existing ask for just the, the handles or whether it would extend also to the passwords, which, of course, move you past your public social media content to your private social media content. So, so whether it's uh, increasing a bad program or implementing an even worse program, it, it, it's very bad news. Yeah. So... Um... Do we know, is this information like actively used? Like as I'm gathering this information, are they searching databases for, not really no fly list, but for some sort of a, uh, to match you on a list? Or would they likely take action on this information right away if your biometrics or your uh, your facial recognition or your social media stuff pops up on some list? Are you likely to be detained immediately based on this information? Or as far as we know, it's a matter of kind of collecting it so that if they need it later, they can use it. Well, the, the purpose of the um the social media collection on visa applicants is to decide whether to give them a visa. Uh, it's a form of vetting. And they seem to be um, uh, planning to look through it manually, but also there was just a request for proposals um, issued by uh, the Department of Homeland Security within a month back in which it is asking companies to sell them automated ways, automated ways to sift through um, social media. So we assume that we're looking at artificial intelligence being applied to massive volumes of social media to weed out the bad guys, which is, uh, we think, a uh, very menacing thing to do because the, the AI will be so um, you know, uh, incorrect in its assessments of who is dangerous. Um, as to the um, request for this information at the border, um, we assume that it is a part of searching devices so they can search devices more easily. And that also they might at the border be just, you know, Googling you based on uh, your, your social media identifiers to see if there's cause to be suspicious about you and go more deeply at your bags. We haven't heard of anybody being arrested or bounced from the border um, on this basis. Um, as to the purpose of the um, um, collecting the biometrics of the border, the announced purpose is to keep track of immigrants entering and exiting, um, whether they will start doing other things with this uh, biometrics uh, remains to be seen. Gotcha. And that's a perfect segue into a couple other topics I wanted to touch on while I had both of you here. Uh, and that is, uh, there was a, a few weeks back, there was a, a news article I saw about a response from the, uh, the Border Patrol to Senator Wyden um, about he had, he had done a request about asking about cloud data. Uh, and the response said, quote, um, in conducting a border search, CBP does not access information found only on remote servers through an electronic device presented for examination, regardless of whether those servers are located abroad or domestically. Instead, border searches of uh, electronic devices apply to information that is physically resident on the device during a CBP inspection. So, unquote. so that sounds good. That sounds like maybe, maybe a little progress or a little, a little clarification that might be a little toward protecting your privacy, but it still seems kind of vague to me. Like, for example, what does it mean to be physically, quote unquote, physically resident on the device? This is digital data. Uh, so if that means if I've got a Dropbox account on my, on my thing where the way Dropbox tends to work on your phone is it'll show you a list of files, but they're actually not downloaded to your, to your phone until you select them. Is that covered? What about emails or texts that are actually, you know, so I'm, I'm looking at someone's text history, which the recent texts are going to be on the phone. But if I just scroll back, the, the cloud is going to pull history and pull that, too. So it seems like there's a lot of leeway still in this. Is it Was this a good thing or, or, or is it really just still not helping? 
Well, so first, I'd like to say that EFF has published a border travel guide in March of 2017 that has tips about how travelers can protect themselves and their data at the border. Uh, we're happy to send you that link and make sure that you can share that because there's a lot of really great information in there with practical steps of what you can do. Mm -hmm. uh, I think you've also you've hit on some great things. Uh, it's sometimes difficult to think about it in this way, but data does have a physical location. Uh, and the location of that data, these emails, these Dropbox files, music, pictures, whatever, it matters when you're looking at what information law enforcement has a right to see. So your digital device, your phone, your iPad, your laptop, your tablet, whatever, it is more often a portal for content that is stored in the cloud elsewhere. And so it's accessible to you, the authorized user, wherever you happen to be in the world, which is great and awesome and why those services exist. But it doesn't mean that law enforcement has equal access to your data just because they happen to have physical access to your digital device. Right. So um, at the border or at ports of entry, so airports across the country are also considered ports of entry, uh, Border Patrol does have the right to uh, conduct searches of travelers and their belongings based on lower standards than if you were elsewhere in the country. So at a port of entry, uh, Customs and Border Patrol has the right to uh, do searches based on, you know, reasonable suspicion. However, uh, CBP announced in response to some other things that they would not be accessing data searched in the cloud. Exactly what that looks like and exactly how that means in the real world is a little bit of an open question. And we think that this issuing, CBP issuing their updated uh, standards is a great next step, but we're interested to see what happens next. We wish their written statement had gone a little bit further, but we're happy to see that they said what they did say. Right. Um, so let this is maybe getting a little esoteric, so I want to back up a little bit and kind of bring this home for the for the listener. We've talked about kind of vaguely all these some uh, these laws and regulations and 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 what they might mean. But let's let's bring it home. If I'm a traveler, what does this mean to me? And I and you did you referenced your travel guide, which is great. In fact, I think that's what uh, brought Anna and I together the first time we talked. Um, and what what as a as a human being as a, as a U.S. citizen or maybe just someone visiting the United States, let's just talk briefly about the, the how this concerns me. If I'm traveling, or does it first of all does it only matter to me if I leave the if I leave the country? Does this matter to me if I? Uh, or even when I'm within the country and how does this, how do I think about this in terms of my democracy and my freedoms and all, it's kind of these higher level issues. How do, how do we bring this home so we can understand so that the, the average citizen understands what this really means to them? I think that um, as free citizens in a democracy, we expect that the government is not going to search our most sensitive records without going to a judge and getting a warrant. And that is what the Supreme Court said four years ago in the historic Riley decision. And I think many people find it shocking that the government is taking the position that just because they are crossing the international border, uh, that the government can do an end run around our constitutional protections and crack open our cell phones and look at all of the pictures of our family and all the emails we've ever sent and all the banking records that are uh, cached inside of our devices, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, it's, it's the very opposite of um, how our government ought to be treating us. And uh, so it is uh, with uh, you know, one cheer that we greet the news that uh, they're not going to use the border crossing as an opportunity to look at our cloud content through our devices, uh, but it still is very, very disturbing that they uh, are trying to get away with looking at everything that's inside the device itself. You know, as you mentioned, um, if I'm on, you know, if I get off the airplane and I'm, you know, waiting in line at customs and I go to, um, you know, my, my email account and start looking at email, my phone's in contact with the cloud. 
And uh, while that happens, a great deal of information from the cloud about my email gets cached inside my phone. And even if the agents were to stick it in airplane mode, uh, they're going to see a lot of information about my communications with my, my business partners, my rabbi, my wife, whoever it is that I'm exchanging emails with. And uh, it's, it's in the phone and not in the cloud at that point. And, and that is not what Americans expect their government to be doing to them. Yeah, and, I, and you know, the way I always kind of bring this home for me is, is the quote from Edward Snowden, and I'll probably butcher it a little bit, so I'll just say I'm paraphrasing. <laughs> Uh, is that, you know, saying that you don't care about um, your privacy because you've got nothing to hide is like saying you don't care about free speech because you have nothing to say. It, it's it's one thing to say that me personally, you know, I don't care if they read my emails. I'm just talking to my wife or I'm just talking to my kids or grocery lists and, you know, my documents are boring. So why should I care? Uh, it's it, it's much deeper than that. It, it, it's very fundamental to our democracy. And there are certain people, and they're not all bad guys. I think that the other common misconception is, well, you know, if you've got if you've got something to hide, then you must be doing something wrong, and that's not necessarily true, right? There's journalists, there's whistleblowers, there's there's intellectual property that that, that might be under NDA. There's all sorts of reasons why you might want this data to be kept private. And you know, honestly, I think and you're, I think you're making this point too is that is you don't need to justify why it's private, right? If you're an American citizen, that is your right. Exactly. That's why going back to some of the the framework that we talk about, the default should be privacy. And once you start backing away from that, you need really specific reasons to do that. You start with privacy and then you argue why you shouldn't have that in this particular case, not the other way around. So some of the other things that people I don't think think about, but it has come up recently in a couple stories. Uh, for instance, uh, there's a story I saw recently about some of the big tech companies uh, coming out and saying like Verizon and Apple and Facebook and Twitter that location data uh, should not be accessible without a warrant. And I don't think a lot of people would have given that a second thought, but um, explain. so that and emails are the other one. I think people don't realize that I, and I could probably get this wrong and maybe you can correct me, but uh, there was some strange law that basically said that if you uh, quote unquote, abandon your data, then it, the, the, the law enforcement doesn't need a warrant to access it. And, and they've taken that to mean that if you leave your emails stored on Google server, which everybody does today, because that's what we do with our emails, that that email is therefore abandoned and there's that you don't need a warrant to go search those things. I don't think a lot of people realize that so, so much of this data that we're generating everywhere we go, just by having a phone on is readily accessible without a warrant. I agree with what you said. I just want a, a friendly amendment. Um, the, uh, Supreme Court has developed what sometimes is called the third party doctrine under which if you give your information to someone else, a third party, it follows that you have no more privacy in it and the government um, can get it without giving you any protection from the Fourth Amendment, you know, privacy protection at all. So uh, these these cases from the 1970s, you, you give your uh, you, you make a phone call and Therefore, you gave the phone company the knowledge that you called person X at time Y. And because of the third party doctrine, you gave it to the phone company. Now the government can get that so-called metadata from you um, uh, or from the phone company without giving you any Fourth Amendment protection. And, and so now, you know, with, with the, uh, the Carpenter case that you'll be asking us about, um, the continuation of that, that so-called third-party doctrine is, is kind of the, the fly in the ointment in terms of uh, reducing our protection. Um, the, the idea of abandonment is also in play. So if you, you know, put your love letters in the garbage can, um, they, they can go through them because you abandoned them. That is the garbage can in the alley. Um, but, but it's the third party doctrine, which is, is, uh, undermining our, our location privacy. Yeah. Thank you. And that's exactly what I was, that's what I was fishing for. And I knew, I'm glad you were there to correct me on that. So you brought it up at the Carpenter case and that's what is kind of bringing these things up. Tell our listeners a little bit about what that is and what that, what that means, how that, uh, how the output outcome of this situation might affect them. So at the heart of the Carpenter case, as you mentioned, is location data. Uh, and we at EFF think that you should have to get a warrant in order to get any of the location data that is stored on your phone. Uh, as just thinking about your own life, where you go and when you go there is very revealing about who you are and how you live your life. And we believe that law enforcement should be held to the highest possible standard when requesting that type of revealing data. Uh, digital devices, your phone, and other web browsers, Google Maps, frequently 
knows where you are for any number of reasons, but just because I let Google Maps know where I am so that I don't get lost on some road trip that I'm taking doesn't mean that I give law enforcement equal access to know how many times I go to the bathroom in any given day. Or if I take a detour on the way home from work someday, that's not something that I give the government access to just because I keep my phone in my pocket. Yeah, right. And it's amazing what you can find out from from this metadata that it's so telling. And uh, the government has been arguing, uh, certainly in terrorist cases where they say, well, the, the metadata should be uh, more accessible. We're not we're not getting the content. We're just getting the metadata. But the metadata is so telling. And I uh, I think it's actually your website has got so like four or five bullets that just kind of go through some very interesting points about, you know, this person got a call from their doctor. Then this person immediately called uh, female XYZ. And then this person um, called their divorce lawyer. I mean, so you don't know. <laughs> you didn't hear the contents of that conversation, but you might have an idea that this guy might just find out he had an STD or something. And, you know, he called his mistress that, you know, there, you can find out a lot of information. And you got some really telling uh, examples in, on your website that kind of painted that picture. Right. But, you know, it doesn't, again, going back to just the fundamental right to privacy, how much information should the government be able to have about your life and what you do and how you live it in sort of in a general sense, in a dragnet sense? It's a different story if you have a warrant because you're looking for a specific thing on a specific day at a specific time. And you need to know if this person was in this place because we think that they have we have you know, probable cause to think that they've done something that we're further investigating, as opposed to we want to know everywhere that you've ever been so that we maybe can stick you at a location that might be problematic, and then we can take action against that. Those are not the same thing. And we think we should be pushing back against that. Just because it's easy for your digital devices to produce a record of where you are, it doesn't mean it should be easy for law enforcement to get access to that data. Yeah, absolutely. And that's a point that I, that I try to make often on this podcast. And in fact, I recently talked with Ladar Levison uh, from LavaBit. Uh, and he, of course, was the uh, email service provider, the private email service company that had Edward Snowden's account. And the, the uh, I think it was the NSA or the CIA came calling and said, we, you know, we want you to give us information. And and they said he couldn't, but they said, okay, well, in the future, then we want to know about all your traffic. And he basically shut his business down instead of doing that, which is a high props to him for doing that. But it, the point being, mass surveillance is very different than targeted surveillance, and and it we shouldn't be as a as a society making mass surveillance easy, and we, and so you know we should be using end-to-end encryption, uh, and and there are plenty of tools out there that will allow us to kind of, you know, mask. Well, mask makes it sound like we're hiding something, but to protect our, our our individual privacy and not make it easy for all this things, all this data to be hoovered up and saved forever, because it, it can be at this point, this data is stored in Utah somewhere, uh, you know, and have you ever done anything wrong? Well, they could go back and look at everything you've done since the internet came around and, t and find something I'm sure that looks suspicious. Um, so it's a matter of you know, not making mass surveillance easy, but somehow still allowing for the, the fourth amendment warrant based targeted surveillance where we have, convinced a judge that something something is wrong that and, and here's specifically what we believe we can find by doing this and getting a targeted surveillance order well i mean it's not just what you mentioned about whatever you've done wrong it doesn't have to be about what you've done wrong it's it could just be embarrassing i mean people yes. want privacy for any number of reasons and it doesn't have to do with wrongdoing the fundamental right to privacy is much more about privacy for the sake of privacy, not privacy to protect you because of something you might have screwed up on. That's not, I wouldn't say that those are the same things. And I think if you start thinking about it as protection from doing something wrong, then you're already losing the thread a little bit about why the fundamental right to privacy exists in the Constitution at all. Yeah, and I agree. And I didn't mean to imply that. In fact, I often refer to uh, Glenn Greenwald's talk on privacy, which is excellent. If you haven't seen it, I recommend to the audience that they check that out, of which I've done many times. Um, all right. So but before I let you guys go, I, I, I've got to touch on this, too, because it's hot in the news. And I, I think it might be something you might have a comment on. And that is the whole dream host uh, thing with I can't pronounce this guy's name. Uh, Anyway, but the the point being, there was there was a there was an online website that was organizing protests for Trump's inauguration, and you're going to have to help me there because because I, I haven't followed this closely enough, so I'm hoping you can fill in some of the blanks. But they're saying that there's information that is contained on this website that 
that I guess there were people that broke the law. And so they want to, I guess, use the information of everybody that is that has gone to this website to try to track down the, the perpetrators. Maybe you can help me out. What is going on with this situation? And we'll take one last break here before we answer that question and finish up our interview with the EFF folks, Indy McKinney and Adam Schwartz. We are one of the fastest growing podcast and talk radio networks in the world. You're listening to the America Out Loud Talk Radio Network. It's where we say, let the silent voices be heard. And we stand proudly with the men and women who serve in our armed forces and our law enforcement heroes. Thank you for being part of our family. And we'll see you back at AmericaOutloud.com. Well, I, you actually gave a pretty good summary, as strange as that seems. Um, so what happened was, is you know, everybody knows uh, Donald J. Trump was inaugurated as our 45th president on January 20th. Uh, there are a lot of people in this country who are opposed to that happening. And uh, this particular website was organizing the protests to be held at this inauguration. Uh, law enforcement and the Department of Justice alleges that there was some sort of wrongdoing or vandalism or violence or something that happened as part of the, those protests. And as uh, part of their investigation into those events, they issued a warrant to DreamHost, who was the host of the website, for all information relating to this particular domain, this particular website. That included the IP addresses of the 1.3, give or take, million people who visited the website, whether this was an activist who was signing up or just a visitor to see what this website was about or a reporter or really anybody who just clicked the link to see what the website was about. The website would have a record of that visit and the Department of Justice wanted to know who that person was. The warrant also was looking for uh, the production of all of the emails associated with the website, as well as unpublished content, including draft blog posts, photos, or any other information. They wanted absolutely everything that had to do with this website. It was a giant dragnet. They mm -hmm. wanted so catch us, uh, catch us up on what happened with that, because I know there were some, there were some appeals. They uh, they came back and refined what they were looking for, and and catch us, get us up to date on where things stand with that. So uh, DreamHost pushed back, uh, said that that was too much, and uh, EFF supported them in their efforts. And the warrant has been scaled back a bit, though we has say it still has problems. Uh, one of our colleagues here at EFF has been working on this directly, and uh, he has said that before. It was a dragnet and a witch hunt. Now it's just a witch hunt. <laughs> um, so, I mean, the fundamental problem is that DOJ is investigating a website which is dedicated to the planning of a peaceful political protest, which goes to the heart of First Amendment protections. And they're looking for just anything that they can find. And it's not nearly targeted. It's not nearly specific. And... Again, now we have First and Fourth Amendment issues that are at play here. So there's uh, there's still a lot to discuss about what information they should have access to and why. So obviously what this smacks of is some sort of a political thing, right? It's, it's like almost Nixonian looking for, you know, I want information on the people that oppose me. Uh, kind of, or banana republic. I mean, you pick your pick your metaphor or pick your situation, but that's what it, that's what it looks like on it to to the outside world, and that's kind of how the clickbait headlines are are painting. But I think that what they're behind the scenes with you know, to try to play devil's advocate. I think what they're saying is some people here at this, at this rally did some things that were illegal. We're trying to find out who these people were. And, and since we don't know who they are, we just want to kind of call through this data uh, in hopes of getting clues of who the people might be that actually committed crimes. These people, you know, vandalized, you know, uh, vandalized things and caused, you know, tens of thousands of dollars worth of damage. We're trying to find out who these people are. That's what they're, that's how they're couching this, right? That's how, that's how they're, that's why they're saying they need this data. Right. But then you go back to the framework that we're looking at for privacy. You, it's up to law enforcement to tell us who they are looking for and why it's not for law enforcement to say, give us all the information you have so we can figure out who we're looking for and why. Right. 
at the last I heard, the judge said that it was the the, the refined, uh, quote unquote, limited, as you said, is that somewhat limited more uh, scope of this was approved. And he put some more restrictions on it. And, and I, it sounded kind of vague, but it, it sounded like the judge said he wanted to personally see what protocols were going to be in place to protect privacy and things like that. But I can't imagine how any of that would allay your fears. This is an ongoing issue, uh, and we're continuing to work on that. And we're going to do, uh, you know, DreamHost is continuing to push back, and we're continuing to support them on that. Well, I, we appreciate you doing that work, both of you. And, and I've always talked about how great the work you guys have been doing. And I know you guys are supported by note donations and such. I commonly refer to people to uh, send you guys money because if you can't go out there and do the protesting yourself and pay somebody else to do it for you, and you guys are uh, excellent at what you do. Uh, so before we leave, is there anything else you'd like to tell the audience? That, you know, if we want to kind of summarize this, bring it back to um, everyday mom and pop level, uh, what kind of things should we be knowing? Anything we should be doing? If I want to get involved, uh, other than, of course, send you guys uh, some money, what what else can we do? Should we, and write your congressman, that sort of thing. Is there anything else specifically you could think of that we might want to do if we want to get all uh, involved in this? and um, Or and things we might want to do to protect ourselves? Uh, well, you hit on a couple of really great ones. Um, Senator Wyden has a great bill out right now that would uh, require a warrant for uh, searches at the border, for data searches at the border. You know, call your congressman, call your senator, tell them to support this bill. Um, call your congressman, call your senator, tell them not to support Senator Cornyn's bill. Uh, there's a number of things that people can do specifically to protect themselves. There's individual actions that you can take. Um, EFF, uh, as you said, is a member organization. We would love to get more donations. We also have EFA groups that are dedicated to activism more at the local levels that are happening all across the country. And we're happy to connect new people to existing groups where they live, or if there's not one where they live, we're happy to help you start one where you live. Uh, these are groups that get together and focus on either privacy or uh, First Amendment issues or all of the above and just really try to focus on what they can do in their communities to help, you know, keep us all protected. Well, that's great. And, and you've got another tool that I'd like to recommend that you've, you've, you've got a tool for contacting your congressmen um, or your representatives. Uh, yes. And I've used it myself. So tell us about that and how that works. It's wonderful. Uh, you... On our website, there is a tool where you can contact your congressman. You put in your address, and we will tell you which members represent you, both your senators and your local representative, and that will connect you to uh, an online system where you can send them a message and say what you would like them to support. And I believe it's also got the automated phone call set up too, doesn't it? I think that's correct. Yeah, I've used that myself. It's wonderful. So Because I know that uh, when you listen to um, – oh, shoot, what's the, the, the modern um, – protest group that helped that uh, I can't remember the indivisible. Yes. Indivisible. Uh, one of their tactics they recommend is if you really want to be heard, it's, it's great to send uh, email or post online petitions, but congressmen had, uh, apparently listen a lot more to actual phone calls or snail mail, uh, I guess probably because they take more time, but your, your tool will actually walk you through and make the phone calls for you to talk to each of these offices. And when you get done with one, it'll hang up and call the next one. That's what it's fantastic. And it'll give you a nice little, script if you you know if you're a little worried about what you want to say as i recall it'll help you with some talking points um it, it's a great tool i just want to say that you know anyone listening might think that we are technology pessimists who who primarily fear the coming orwellian nightmare but but actually we're technology optimists and so this tool that you've been describing here uh, we think is a classic example of how uh, direct democracy can be facilitated by technology. So instead of having to rummage around a phone book and find, you know, three different offices and go through the trouble of, uh, you know, clicking through and calling, you know, this tool makes it easy peasy for the uh, the motivated uh, voter to just quickly communicate with their two U.S. senators and, and their U.S. representative. And uh, our uh, team of uh, more than a dozen technologists day in, day out are inventing new tools like this that um, in which the technology improves our lives. That's wonderful. You guys are doing some great stuff there at the EFF. India, Adam, thank you very much for coming on the show. That was a very informative discussion. I hope our audience got a lot out of that. I know I did. 
All right, and it's time for our tip of the week. Uh, at the top of the show, I talked about Foxit uh, PDF Viewer and how it is currently riddled with security holes, and we need to get that patched right away if you use Foxit PDF Reader. Uh, more than likely, however, you probably use Adobe Reader uh, as your PDF viewer. And again, PDF is portable document format. Um, it's a .PDF file. Uh, it's been around for over two decades now. It's a great utility. It's a common format for document exchange, so that it doesn't matter if you're on a Mac or a PC or Android or iOS. PDF format, the, the whole portable part of the portable document format is that you can use it on any device, and it's a common standard. It's been wonderful. It's it's been it's been very handy to have for all these years. However, uh, the company that created that came up with the format, Adobe, uh, has the most popular uh, application for viewing those things, and it's free, uh, and it's fine. It has lots of features. In fact, it's got tons of features. However, it's also got a lot of security holes. Now. Part of the problem is it's because it's so popular, it's a target for hackers. And that's true of Microsoft Windows as well. One of the reasons that there are so many bugs, uh, so many bugs found in Windows and Adobe Reader is because it's so popular. It's, you know, why do you rob banks? Well, that's where the money is. Same thing. The hackers are going after the most popular things because that will get them into statistically more computers because it's used more often. So anyway... Uh, my tip of the week, however, is not to use either one of those. Don't use Adobe Reader for sure. Uh, and I would actually not use Foxit either, even after you get it fixed. Uh, you've got a couple other options that I want to tell you about that are probably safer for you. First of all, almost every modern browser today, every web browser, that would be Firefox, Safari, Edge, uh, even Internet Explorer, I think, Opera. Uh, I'm missing one here. Chrome, Google Chrome. Uh, those, are the, those, those are the popular browsers. I think every one of them now will read a PDF file. So if you've downloaded a PDF file, chances are your browser has probably already opened it for you. Uh, for viewing. If you happen to get the file from somebody else, you can just take that file and drag it right onto your web browser and it should bring that file up and show you the file. So that's probably the simplest way. And a lot of browsers today have built in what they call sandboxing, um, which uh, should be some added security to, my, to protect anything that might be somehow embedded in that file from, from jumping out and getting into your system. Uh, short of that, however, there's two other things I'd like to recommend. Uh, on a Mac, it comes with an application called Preview. In fact, that's the default application. If you double-click a PDF file on a Mac, it will open in Preview. That's a great viewer. Uh, I haven't heard of any major security flaws in that, so that is for, if you're on a Mac, you're good to go. Uh, on Windows, however, if you want to try something different, I would look at one called Sumatra PDF. Uh, it's free. It's open source. Uh, which is which those two things are good now of course we talked a minute ago about things being free being bad in this case it's open source which means there's this is kind of a charity thing a lot of developers got together and created this thing and they built it together um, uh, just because they thought it was something they wanted to do and so it's kind of their gift to the community so in that case I think we're okay with free. The nice thing about open source is the code that makes up this application is out there for anybody to see. And while the hackers can look at that, there's way more people out there that are interested in keeping the hackers out and looking at that code to make sure there are no flaws, there are no major bugs that those hackers can get their claws into. So anyway, if you're on a, if you're on a Windows PC, I would recommend you check out Sumatra PDF. It's very lightweight. It's very simple. Uh, it's free. It's open source. It's a, it, uh, I would use that before I used any of the other tools, except maybe your web browser. That's, a, that's an also an easy way to go. Now, I mentioned a little bit earlier in the show that I was going to let you know how you could help me to help you. And uh, instead of telling you all about it here, we're a little bit short on time. So what I'm going to have you do is go to a website called patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash firewalls don't stop dragons. Uh, all the letters are capitalized and there's no apostrophe. Uh, you can find the link, of course, on my website and as well. You can go to firewallsdon'tstopdragons.com uh, and you'll find the link there. You can also find it on the show notes uh, for this podcast. Uh, check that out. Um, uh, what I want to do is expand what I'm doing, reach more people, and uh, I'm hoping you can help me do that. Check that out at patreon.com slash firewallsdon'tstopdragons. All right, and that's going to wrap up another episode of Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. Thanks for listening again. We'll be back next week with the episode on Castle Defense 101, where we're going to talk about backups and why you absolutely positively need to be backing everything you have up, at least those important files. And I'll tell you which ones those files are, and I'll tell you how to do it. Tune in next week, and we'll have the winner of the contest for the best backup horror story or success story, and that person will win a free book. So tune in next week for that. And until then, don't get caught with your drawbridge down. See you next week, folks. 